uh, things occur to me. This morning, while I was having breakfast, uh, early preparing for my journey downtown for the 8 o'clock service, I was reminded uh, of the place of breakfast cereals in my upbringing. It doesn't seem to be quite the mystery surrounding breakfast cereals that there used to be. Uh, not only from time to time were there certain uh, items of surprise to be found housed uh, within that cereal. And when my brother and I would vie as young aspiring males in competition for that prize that would be found housed in that box of breakfast cereal. But in addition to that, there were things you could send off for. And uh, I remember four things in particular that I sent off for in the sort of mystery of you would send them off to faraway places with names like St. Louis. It seemed all the breakfast cereal that came to Drumright, Oklahoma was made in St. Louis. Battle Creek, Michigan was another one. You remember that, of course. And so you would consume um, that grain, usually tasting like grow pup. You remember, you remember grow pup, some of you older people here. With lots of sugar, which I'm sure I will pay for later, and lots of milk for which I am now paying for. You would consume the contents to get at the surprise and then to get to the entry form on the back for either a contest or, or something you could send away for. Wheaties had a contest for football. It said, we're giving away 5,000 footballs. And so I entered the contest and it was the early beginning of my career in poetry. You had to make a poem about Wheaties. I eat Wheaties. To my bones they stick. It gives me the power for an extra high kick. That will be among my posthumous <laughs> writings. I won. But in that sort of nine-year-old consciousness, I thought I'd won 5,000 footballs. That's <laughs> what they said. We, this con in this contest, we will give away 5,000 footballs. As we were cleaning out my father's effects uh, this summer, it's still there. I have it at home. It just got one, but I've had it for 5,000 years. I got one of those Dakota rings, you remember those? It was great, lasted three whole days. Well worth waiting for. The other was, not only did we send off to St. Louis for the contest, but on the radio at night, uh, we listened to the baseball games. Harry Carey, in those days, was the announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals, and the St. Louis Cardinals had a farm team in Tulsa, and so I would occasionally get to go with my father and brother to Tulsa to see the farm club. 
I saw Dizzy Dean on his way down. <laughs> I sent off to St. Louis for a St. Louis Cardinals baseball cap. My brother told me that you could tell the value of a cap by the number of seams on the bill. It's an interesting, insightful thing for one who became an engineer to know such things. He said that the real Major League Baseball caps have 10 seams on the bill. He said the, the amateur editions only have two seams. It seemed to me that when that came, it was going to have 10 seams. You guessed it. It had two. But rather than admit to my brother that he was right, I took a fountain pen. <laughs> and I fashioned an additional eight seams on the cap. When he first got sight of it, he said, it looks like there are ants all over your bill. <laughs> Also, mother ordered for me. She thought it was a good thing. I wasn't terribly interested in it. They had a t-shirt with a great big, hello, my name is, and then they would print your name on it. And mother thought that was a great gift for me. I never valued it too much. I thought that was a little silly. I liked the baseball cap and the Dakota ring and the football much better than this stupid shirt that said, hello, my name is Pitt. <laughs> I mean, really, walking around with a shirt, hello, my name is Pitt. <laughs> my father's company had a picnic and she made me wear it all night long. You know what Pitt rhymes with. <laughs> How would you like to be called Spit? <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> you got real nervous, didn't you? I want to talk about faith's journey today in another way, only because it seems to me that we talk about this mystery called faith, this thing called religion or spirituality, which is a sort of a mystery that, that aches to be known, and there's something about that mystery that's woven into us that equally aches to know, and we keep missing because we have all of this competition for a union or a reunion between the mystery of the source of the universe that's been implanted in us seeking reunion, and so we must continue to think and talk about that until we get it metabolized. So I want to talk about a faith journey in another way, and that is to remind you that good theology is good autobiography. And my talking about my own journey, my own life, my own woundedness, my own estrangement, my own loneliness, my own sense of failure, my feelings, my fantasies, I talk about those not simply because I'm narcissistic and need attention. That's only half the reason. <laughs> the other reason is because you cannot do good theology without doing good autobiography, because that is where the experience lies, within one's own personal journey. And to reflect upon one's own story, Frederick Bigner says it so well about the priest. He says the priest has two, job, two jobs, and that is to tell the story of Jesus and his own story. Now, one of the things that I've discovered in listening to people through the years as priest, counselor, spiritual director, uh, therapist, is that 
we have within us, and Jung identified this, certain instinctual urges towards satiating certain things in our lives. It's like the instincts are to the body, that there are certain things in our psyche that we need, like the body needs food, the psyche or spirit needs nurture. And so we seek these things, and symbols are the presentation externally of what we need internally. Now the symbols come to us everywhere in art and literature and mythology and sacred story, sacraments, movies, poetry, almost anywhere we look they're available to us. But one of the places that we don't look is in our own life. In other words, we watch movies and we look at those lives and see the symbols portrayed there I think unconsciously we know what's going on, but consciously we don't always make the connection. It's the same with a sacred story. As I'm fond of saying that if you read these Bible stories and uh, the time comes where you say that's their story and then you say that's our story and finally you say, my God, that's my story. That is something of the evolution of spiritual development when you realize that that story is about me, that's my story. Now, I think we don't pay enough attention sometimes to the events in our lives that are very mundane and then very ordinary because that evidently is the secret. The secret that we have looked for all along, and that is that the very meaning we seek is not going to be found outside the structures of our own experience that the good theology is good autobiography, and that is listening to, rehearsing, telling our own stories. Part of the definition of intimacy is telling your own story, honestly, candidly, with all of those elements of feelings and fears and fantasies and failures that are incumbent in everybody's story, uh, to tell those. I mean, all we do at this family meal on Sunday at the Holy Table is tell stories. We tell stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in the preacher tries to integrate the relevance of that story to his own or her own life, therefore seeing if there's any place at which it touches your life. I don't preach about you and them, I preach about me. Preaching is the gospel mediated through personality, and so we must speak of ourselves in personal ways, uh, if not private ways. And so we must know our own story and reflect upon your own story in the, the sentences and paragraphs and chapters uh, of your own life. You must continually reflect upon those, find opportunities and vehicles to do that. It may be as simple as a morning's meditation at breakfast about the place of cereal in your own life. Because it took me another place. It reminded me, and as you know, I've been talking about masculine psychology in the last few weeks and the developmental stages, but of the uh, male child as he must separate from mother, bond with father and other father figures and peers, uh, competing, uh, testing metal against others, uh, uniting on the basis of competition in order to defeat a common enemy, and then uh, realizing that the common enemy is within, and it's that that has kept you from your own soul, uh, which is uh, the ego masculinity. And so I reflected about a story this morning uh, as I was driving down. Actually, to be fully accurate, I reflected upon this story all week, but got it integrated enough to tell this morning. 
When I was about 10, I was playing baseball in what was known as the OK Kids Association, which was the Oklahoma's membership in the Little League. And uh, I played on the uh, Yanks. And it was a nice balance for me because the left side of my heart was with the St. Louis Cardinals because their farm team was in Tulsa and because Harry Carey was ubiquitous on those uh, summer nights outside with the radio coming through the screened window as we played yard games and families in those days sat in front yards and lawn chairs and uh, drank uh, cider tea and, and uh, cold beer on blocks of ice. And the ball game was ubiquitous as a sort of a, a musical symphony for the play and conversation that went on. It was an undergirding uh, to all of the activity in the front yard and we would listen uh, to the Tulsa, Oiler, Tulsa Oilers and the St. Louis Cardinals. So half of my heart was with the Cardinals and the great Stan Mutual as brought to me from Harry Carey. But I played for the Yanks in the OK Kids Association, which was OK because the other half of my heart was in the American League with the New York Yankees because that's where the great Mantle played. And he was from Commerce, Oklahoma. Actually from Pitcher, which is near Commerce, his dad worked in the lead mines in Pitcher, but he was known as a Commerce Comet, which is near Miami, as most of you know. <laughs> Miami is in Florida. Miami is in northern Oklahoma. So the other half of my heart was with the Yankees, and what a nice integration for this latent period of blooming pre-adolescence that I could fulfill my heart's desire by having, at one and the same time, a St. Louis Cardinals baseball cap artificially stitched with my father's fountain pen and play for the Yanks all at the same time. No wonder I have such a sound ego even in my middle age. <laughs> the OK Kids Association sponsored a trip on the train from Tulsa to St. Louis for a three-game series. The largest town I'd ever visited up until this Time was Tulsa and my father brought home the flyer that said the OK Kids Association was sponsoring a trip to St. Louis you would get a train ride from Tulsa to St. Louis hotel accommodations tickets to the ball game and to the zoo all for $35 Well, I didn't have $35. My father, modeling masculinity, agreed that if my brother and I would do certain chores that we could earn $35 and that he would then apply that uh, to our trip. That was extraordinary because my brother and I were in charge of mowing our lawn. And my brother took half the yard. I took the other half. He said, we'll divide it this way. I'll take the easy half. You take the hard half. That's my brother. You remember him. He's the colonel in the Air Force. It was because of him. You remember I didn't know gum was sweet till I was five. 
he would get the package, chew it first, and then give it to me. <laughs> so we worked in the yard, and this was extraordinary to be paid for this because we got 50 cents a week allowance, which really was our payment for keeping the yard. And 50 cents a week, if you can figure very carefully, it's going to take many weeks to get $35. So Father said if we continue mow the lawn, there were a couple of car washes in there and some other extraordinary events around the house in order to earn this money to go to St. Louis on the train from Tulsa. $35 each in hand, but that only got us the train ride and the hotel accommodations and the tickets to the game and to the zoo. What about spending money? Well, Father left us on our own for that, and uh, I have always had an ace in the hole. Um, my grandmother, <laughs> who lived in Lincoln, Arkansas, which is just across the line from Westville, which is near Fayetteville, as most of you know. Now, she <clears throat> um, had a doctor who delivered all nine of her children. The doctor's name was James Pittman, Dr. Pittman. And so she named her firstborn son, James Pittman Hanks, after the doctor who had delivered him and all of the children in that county. When I was born, my mother named me for her brother, who was the firstborn in her family, so I am James Pittman McGee. So living in Tulsa was my Uncle Pitt. He ran the Wick Wire Rope Company. And so I wrote a note to Uncle Pitt and told him of my predicament. By return mail came $15 bills. In those days, you know, you could send money in the mail. $15 bills. I was set. The <clears throat> publisher of the drumwright, Derek, <laughs> sort of an imaginative name for a weekly newspaper in Drumright. The Drumright Derek was Gordon Rocket, and his son Joe Rocket was my best friend. You know Joe's nickname was Sky, of course. Um, it's been great speculation about whether I make these up. certain things I relish between God and me. No, I couldn't make up cheesy Eubanks, nor can I make up Skyrocket. Sky's father, Gordon, was really to chaperone Sky and me, but my older brother was going too, so I really did have a father figure traveling with me, the one on whom I would have to transfer and project all of my needs for supervision. My brother got $15, and all he had to do was actually go to his sock drawer because he was the kind who always had money. I don't know where it came from, how he got it, but he always had money. He had his $15 way before I had to beg my Uncle Pitt for such. Well, uh, we went to Tulsa. My father and mother drove my brother and me the 40 miles to Tulsa through Sepulpa and Sand Springs, as you know, to get to Tulsa. You remember those towns in Oklahoma are interesting how you get to. You remember my college roommate, some of you remember him, Gene Johnson, who was from Seminole, Oklahoma, which is the hub of the Tri-City area. 
Seminole, Holdenville, and we woke up. But his father was from Bowlegs, Oklahoma, which is near Henrietta. When we were rushing for our fraternity, my roommate, who was 6'9", all Big 8 basketball player, used to introduce himself to the young Rushy, saying, Hi, my name's Gene Johnson. I'm from Seminole, Oklahoma, which is the hub of the Tri-City area. Seminole, Holdenville, and Weewoka, but my daddy's from Henrietta, which is near Bowlegs, and you have to go through Bowlegs to get to Henrietta. <laughs> when we got to Tulsa, uh, there seemed to be great um, difficulty in my mother for letting my brother and me go off on the train with Gordon Rocket and his son Sky to St. Louis. And so amidst tears and all kinds of last minute warnings about speaking to strangers, not going into the bathroom alone, keeping your shirt tail tucked in, do you have your money, don't keep it all in one uh, place, uh, you do have the phone number, do you know how to make a long distance call if you get lost, etc., etc. And my father all the time sort of pacing back and forth as if impatient with my mother's last minute instructions when indeed, now that I project back, he too uh, was in separation anxiety about our leaving, as was I. I mean, torn between at, and this latency period of pre-adolescence, torn between my need to separate from her and him not being there to take me and the poor substitute for him was the colonel. <laughs> who to the best of my knowledge probably had 17 or 18 dollars with <laughs> And so I remember getting on the train and leaving and there was a mother, it was like a movie. It was not like a movie, it is my movie. I carry it around with me. It's available to me at all times. There was my mother and my father. My father holding my mother, my mother crying as this train leaves out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, taking her only two cubs off to St. Louis. Now, if you want a wonderful metaphor for what I'm going through right now at 47 with both of my parents now dead, that doesn't end. That is not over. It continues. But as you know, I will not return home and have them there this time. I must find them elsewhere. My brother and I uh, went off on the train. Now, if you remember, the colonel's two years older than I. Uh, one of the last things that he wanted, because as you know, the power and authority for the adolescent uh, is peer group. I wasn't in his peer group. Um, I was two years younger, and Skye and I uh, weren't able to be with John McCormick and Gary Kyle and my brother's friends. So I couldn't be with him in his circle of relationships. So there I was left, sort of as an abandoned orphan, with Sky Rocket sitting in this great train full of OK kids, heading off to St. Louis. We got to this huge hotel 
It was the largest hotel I'd ever seen. It was in the biggest town that I'd ever seen. And up to that time, St. Louis was this, was this mythological place on the back of cereal boxes. But here we were in St. Louis in this incredible hotel. I lived in Kansas City for five years after I got out of seminary and had went to St. Louis several times. I went back to the hotel. You imagine what it looks like. <laughs> About the size of this room. Now, the story was full of all kinds of interesting things. Uh, we arrived on a Friday night, went all night and slept for a two-game doubleheader on Saturday and a game on Sunday afternoon and then home on Sunday night. Well, we get up for breakfast after this sleepless night, exhausted on this wonderful train ride. I could focus an entire lecture on the wonder of trains and riding on trains and little boys without parents being set off on a train to go to St. Louis to see the Cardinals, but suffice it to say that that's a metaphor within itself. And then being in this great hotel, sleeping in this room with Sky Rocket being alone and lonely, my only touch with anything that gave me security was the Colonel, and God knows where he was. <laughs> we got up to go to breakfast, and so Gordon Rocket came and got Sky and me, and we went down, and as I remember, was a cafeteria line for some reason, and I spotted up at the cash register the colonel, and I didn't know exactly how I was to apportion this $15. I had to pay for this meal. Uh, it was one of the second times I'd ever been to a cafeteria. There was more food than I could account for. And how to make precise and mature choices among all of this cafeteria, the smorgasbord of choices, so I didn't know what to do. So, sort of out of my own sense of the known, I got a box of cereal. I looked to see where it was made. It was made right there in St. Louis. And so I had a box of cereal for breakfast so I wouldn't uh, spend all of my $15 in the morning before we ever got to the game. The most significant thing that happened to me on the entire trip was really somehow the point of all of this story is that we uh, got dressed and we went to the game and I dressed absolutely according to mother's last minute instructions and according to what she'd packed in chronological order for the days. <laughs> so we got to the game. I was wearing my St. Louis Cardinals baseball cap with the artificial stitching and I was all ready. We walked in and got there early because uh, the bus picked us up to get us there to watch the warm-ups ahead of time and as we came up this large walkway, they then played in Sportsman Stadium. Walking up, who was to be there, standing, sort of signing autographs and talking to a few people, but Harry Carey. He had, even in those days, huge glasses and that voice. I knew that voice, and I'd seen pictures. I knew that was Harry Carey. I brought an autograph book with me. I still have some of those autographs. I got Stan Musial, Red Shane Deese, and Eno Slaughter's autograph. You remember Eno Slaughter? He could throw from right field and the ball never got six feet off the ground. Remember when he rounded third when he was playing for the Yankees and headed for home? I thought so. <laughs> I came walking up there feeling as nervous and anxious as I've ever felt in my life, called into this new world that I was absolutely fascinated, intimidated, and overwhelmed with, and at the same time, not feeling terribly secure because she wasn't there, nor was he, and the poor substitute, the colonel, was nowhere to be found. But I came walking up, 
Harry Carey looked down at me and said, Hello, Pitt. Harry Carey knew my name. <laughs> Hello, Pitt. And that deep baritone voice, this mythological voice out of a faraway place another time. Hello, Pitt. Well, she was right. And the instructions were, on Saturday, when you go to the game, wear this one. And I wore it, dumb as I thought it was. I wore it around my shoulders like my mother complex, doing what she told me to do. Yes, my nose and underwear were both clean. And she had given me an identity for which I continually thank God. Hello. Pit. Now, there's a, there's a lot of things about that mother complex that I've had to take off. I can't wear that shirt anymore. You know what happened to that shirt, don't you? It was very simple. I outgrew it. But there was a time that it was very important that she had given me that. Harry Carey knew me by name. Well, we went out into this great mythological field, as you know. I mean, there it was. You do know that the word park comes from the same root as paradise. And that that game played there is the reenactment of all of the hero's journey. The one who takes the big risk, comes to bat alone, must leave his peer group and stand alone. Uh, when they throw the pitch, if he should happen to get on base, he's out there by himself, second base, is a place that you might die because all of us finally want to get up alone take our licks get out there on base so we can come home again well um, I saw the great Musial hit a home run saw Red Shane Deans turn a double play saw Enos Slaughter throw a man out at home. I bought some souvenirs that day. I got a pennant. I got a very expensive present for myself. It cost $8. Exhausted over half of my resources. I bought a St. Louis Cardinals baseball hat with 10 stitches. <laughs> There's another ball game, dinner that night, breakfast the next morning, and another ball game to go, and we hadn't even been to the zoo. I only had $7 left. By the time uh, the doubleheader was over and we went to the zoo the next morning and we got to the ball game, I didn't have a penny left. And we had to eat one more time and get home. I mean, I was too weak to work and too strong to beg. 
I made up my mind basically that what I would do is just live without a meal because I had fed on such a banquet. So we were at the hot dog stand and went with Sky as he was going to eat. Lo and behold, who should I see up there but the colonel? And he noticed that I hadn't bought a hot dog. So he came over and he said, I bet you need a dollar, don't you? Yeah. Well, he was there. Not all the time, not particularly when I wanted him, but he was there when I needed him. Now, I'm running out of time. I could tell you so much more, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Do I need to be condescending enough to you to exegete this piece of scripture? I will own every piece of uh, the abundant narcissism that is found in my telling you a story of my life. But there's another half to that, and that is that that story is about us, and that story is about you. That which is most personal is most universal. There is an autobiography that is yours. The first half of your life, it's all biography. It's written by her, him, and them, including the colonel. But the second half of life, it's autobiography. The pen's been given to me, and I write. You are currently writing your autobiography. I think that the way they wrote it will have something to say about the way you write it. But I encourage you, it's your pen. You can write it any way you want. They can't write it for you. You must write it yourself. And so here I am in midlife with this pen in hand trying to write it the best I can. Not perfectly, but just the best I can. And you know, one of the things that Christianity has given me is the right to write. To write it myself. I'm free. Write it any way I want. And I'm not going to write it perfectly. I'm just going to write it the way I know how. The best I can. And that's all I can do. But as I write it, I'm thankful for just a few things that have come to me that are going to help me. One of them is uh, that that company and its editors at some point discovered what an incredible poet I am. The second <clears throat> is to realize that those Dakota rings only last three days. Uh, the fourth is that you can't make a two-stitch baseball cap into a ten-stitch without lying. And the fourth is Hello, my name is Pitt.